with you this evening, if you would turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6 this evening. We want to begin reading in verse 5, and we'll read down to verse 15. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and it says this, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, Enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his eternal and inspired word. If the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon ever given, then the Lord's Prayer is the greatest prayer ever formulated. It's a prayer with which every one of us is undoubtedly familiar. It is read or rehearsed in some form in every church the world over. It is said at funerals. It is said at weddings. It is recited on state occasions. It is read in little mission halls and prayed in great cathedrals and repeated in simple homes and grand palaces. There is no prayer on earth quite like the Lord's Prayer. Millions of people pray it every day. Some people pray it in penance for their sins and others pray it almost as a lucky charm, hoping that their fortunes will change. Well, Jesus taught us never to pray this prayer that way. In fact, in verse 7, he condemns that as feign repetition. Neither is it a prayer that he himself would have prayed, for it contains the petition, forgive us our debts. And so the Lord Jesus, we know, is neither debtor to God nor debtor to man. He is the sinless spotless Lamb of God. And so we call this prayer the Lord's Prayer on the basis that it was the Lord who gave it to us. But if we were going to be more accurate with it, we could call it the model prayer or the pattern prayer. It establishes a pattern and teaches us how to approach God in prayer. In truth, this prayer, which takes less than half a minute to say, teaches us more about God than many theology lessons would teach you uh, in a whole hour. 
and what vital lessons there are for us tonight in just 66 words of this prayer. Now, I want to look at this prayer with you tonight. I want to look at it from a particular angle and to consider this prayer as, as respect to those who pray it, not really understanding what it is they're saying. And so we ought to pray with understanding. And I want to begin with those opening words of the prayer in verse 9, where the Lord Jesus taught us, therefore, to pray, Our Father, that is who He is. He is our Father. Now, he's not the father of all men. That's what liberal theologians would teach you. They speak of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. And at least that's what they used to teach. Now they have a rather perverse angle in all of that in this generation. And they speak of the parenthood of God rather than the fatherhood of God in an effort to feminize God. You know, the Church of England is now debating about rewriting and reviewing and revising this prayer. And so that, so that indeed it begins, our parent who art in heaven. Isn't it strange that we live in a world where everyone and anyone can pick their own pronouns except God? God has revealed himself by this masculine pronoun, Father. Well, Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father. And that's who he is. He's the Father of all who have a relationship with him. Paul says, Because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, and Abba means Papa or, or Daddy in our uh, vernacular. Only those who are His, only those who belong to Him, only those who possess His Spirit within may address Him in this way. Not everyone may address Him by these terms. In John chapter 8 and verse 44, the Lord Jesus reminds us that the greater bulk of humanity has an altogether different Father when He says, You're of your Father the devil. And the lusts of your father will you do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. You see, if you're not a Christian tonight, you have a different father. God is not your father, and heaven is not your home, and you're not part of God's family. You belong to a different family, spiritually speaking. You're under the, uh, under the fatherhood of Satan. I wonder, can you say with me tonight that God is your father? Can you say, our father? Or do you have an altogether different father? Our father, that's who he is. Our father, which art in heaven, that's where he is. You know, heaven holds the throne room of God. The Bible tells us that there are three heavens. When it speaks of the three heavens, it talks firstly of the atmospheric heaven, the, the heaven all around us in which the birds and the insects fly. And then beyond that, you have the universal heaven in which the stars and the planets are located and the solar system and the, and the universe. And then beyond that, you have the third heaven, which is the dwelling place of God. And someday, every believer is going to be caught up to the third heaven. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, how he was caught up 
into the third heaven and he saw things and he heard things that he was not allowed to unveil or repeat. And so when the Lord Jesus comes someday in rapture for those who are his and calls us to a side, we're not going up into the universal heaven. We're going beyond that into the heaven of God, into the third heaven. And that can happen at any moment in the twinkling of an eye, the Lord says. And, and here we're going to be by our heavenly father's side. You know, heaven is the natural home of the Lord Jesus. This earth was never intended to be uh, his home. In fact, he said himself, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's talking about his heavenly home. If you were to die tonight, I wonder where your soul would go. Where would you spend eternity? Will you go to be with our Father in heaven? Or will you indeed leave this life uh, to be dispelled from our Father's presence and to spend all eternity without him? What a tragic end that would be. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That tells us what he is. He is hallowed. That means he's holy. He's distinct from all others. He is the creator. All else is created. He is infinite. Everything else is finite. He is separate and unique. He is sanctified and holy. There is an apartness about him. Hebrews 7, 26 puts it this way, that he is holy and harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens. You see, there are people and they refer to God in the most demeaning terms. They refer to him as the man above. Or they speak, to him, speak of him as the man upstairs. Or one, guy, one fellow I heard refer to him as the big, big guy in the sky. And people use these demeaning designations that, uh, that uh, in order to somehow, uh, to somehow degrade God and, and to somehow pull him down to our level. But let me tell you something. Our Father which art in heaven is hallowed in his name. He's completely distinct and separate from us. He is God and Lord of all. He's completely pure and dwells in the most marvelous light. The Bible puts it this way. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. We can't even envisage such an environment. An environment in which there is no darkness at all. Even in this room which is lit up in part by natural light and lit up in part by electricity. Nevertheless, there are shadows beneath our seats. There are places of darkness. But my friends, when you get into the, into the presence of God himself, there is no darkness at all. So hallowed is he, so holy is he, so separate from sin is he, that he cannot even bear to look upon the very appearance of evil. Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13 says, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. I wonder where that leaves you tonight. If God can't even bear to look Upon sin. And if he's not your father. And heaven's not your home. 
Where's that leave you tonight? Can you now claim him as your father? Can you reasonably expect such a one as holy as he to turn a blind eye to your sin or to my sin, to open heaven's door for you and to let you in? If you died tonight, where will you spend eternity? The Lord taught us to pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then he said this, Thy kingdom come. That's his plan. Our Father tells us who he is. Which art in heaven tells us where he is. Hallowed be thy name speaks about what he is. And thy kingdom come tells us about his plan. You see, the whole Bible is dedicated to this notion that God in Christ Jesus intends to establish a kingdom upon earth someday. Now, you can't have a coming kingdom. Listen to me. You can't have a coming kingdom without a coming king. There can be no coronation day without a, a head to be crowned. In a week or two, we will have a coronation in our country and uh, King Charles III will make his way down to Westminster Abbey and the crown will be put upon his head formally. And yet with all, you can't have a coronation if you don't have a king. My friends, listen, the Lord Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, he's coming to be king. And when he comes, every celebrity will be nameless. When he comes, every millionaire will be penniless. When he comes, every politician will be powerless. You see, his name will be above every name. Every, every gift will be laid at his feet. And all power shall be and has been given unto him. Friends, listen to me. Someday the Lord Jesus is going to break through the blue. Someday he's coming to a world that least expects him to come. A world that cries, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. But the Bible says this, that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness, but will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements, the earth shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are there therein shall be burned up. Listen, Jesus is coming again. Are you ready? Are you ready? Thy kingdom come. That's his plan. Now I want you to listen to this next bit. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. That's why he's coming. He's coming to do his will on earth. You see, when the Lord comes, he's going to set right all the wrongs of this world. Has that occurred to you? You see, I hate to tell you this, but God is offended every single day by the behavior of sinful men. We live in a world where it seems that everybody is offended by somebody somewhere along the line and nobody is supposed to be offended anymore. You're not supposed to say anything that offends anyone ever. But I hate to tell you, God is offended every single day. The Bible says God is angry with the wicked every day. You see, this world is just storing up for itself wrath, a day of wrath to come. And you can mark it down, that day is coming. God is offended. It doesn't matter who else is offended. 
It doesn't matter if the race beaters are offended. It doesn't matter if the LGBT crowd are offended. It doesn't matter if the atheists are offended or the so-called woke people are offended or the thought police or the godless are offended. But it matters if God is offended. Don't you think God is offended when little boys and little girls are mutilated with government sanction in order to, uh, to appease transgender ideology? Do you know in 2009 there were 77 referrals to the NHS from children who were, uh, who were confused about their gender and who were seeking help with gender dysphoria? And 10 years later, 2019, there were 2,728 such children that were sent to the NHS supposedly wanting to change their gender. My friends, this world is broken. This world is broken. Don't you think God is offended by that statistic? Don't you think God is offended when Ofsted downgrades perfectly good schools because they won't uphold this ideology, but they close down Christian schools because they teach creation and because they teach the biblical view of marriage? Don't you think God is offended? Don't you think God is offended? Uh, you know, when, uh, whenever you uh, read various news articles and they're everywhere to be seen, you know, a, a couple of weeks ago we had this terrible incident in Nashville, Tennessee uh, of a transgender person showing up at a Christian school and, and mowing down the children and the staff. Three six-year-olds shot dead. Three staff members shot dead. And the press took hold of it and they looked into it. And you know what they said? They said the reason this person did this was because they had Christian parents who wouldn't bow to their transgender view of things. Wasn't the fault of the the shooter. It wasn't the fault of the killer. It wasn't the fault of society. It wasn't the fault of the ideology. It was the fault of the Christians. Don't you think God is offended by that? You know, the press carried a story this week of a school in California allowing an 11-year-old girl to transition to a boy behind her parents' back. Parents weren't even told. And you say, well, that's America for you. I hate to tell you this, that's Ulster for you. You see, that's what the, that's what the SNP want for Scotland. That's what the Ulster Unionist Party wants for Northern Ireland. That's what the Green Party wants and the Alliance Party wants and Sinn Féin wants. They want to have your children come to them and be counseled behind your back. And if your children want to have puberty blockers and they want to go through a physical mutilation and transformation of their person, they will aid them in doing that. If they have their way, they will aid them in doing that. They will allow your child to be absolutely mutilated and to come out the other side as a very disturbed individual and you not know a word about it. Do you think God is offended by that? Do you think God is offended when those same political parties collectively want to outlaw prayer and the preaching of the gospel when it challenges the lifestyle of homosexuals? Do you realize that? Do you realize that senior politicians, these people that this week were rubbing shoulders with the president of America who believes the same things? These people who are being heralded as the saviors of our society are ready to sentence pastors and others to prison 
who would counsel a gay man to repent of his sin, who would indeed encourage him to turn from that godless lifestyle and to adopt a, a, a biblical worldview and to have a holy life and to live a life that is celibate and a life that is clean and a life that is pure. If a pastor is to sit down with such a person, if these laws go through, if a pastor sits down with such a person and says to him, now listen, this is what you need to do. You need to turn from your sin and you need to trust, you need to trust Christ as your saviour. Do you realise that, that Beatty and, 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 uh, and, and Sinn Féin and all the rest of them want that pastor put in prison? What a world we live in. What a world we live in. And Doug Beatty and Naomi Long, Michelle O'Neill and the others want pastors locked up for telling people that Jesus will be their saviour. What a world we live in. Listen, God is offended. And God is going to set this mess right someday. And the Lord Jesus is coming to see that his will is done on earth. That's not some kind of polite theological theory. That's a reality. When Jesus comes, he's not coming as gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He's coming as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's coming to rule with a rod of iron over the affairs of men. He's going to change this planet for the better. And all the wrongs of this life will be righted. Look in Isaiah with me in chapter 11. This world is thankfully going to be a very different world from the world that we and our children and our grandchildren presently inhabit. Isaiah chapter 11. Verse 1, it says, There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots speaking of the Lord Jesus he's the branch he's the rod and the spirit of the Lord shall of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord this is the seven spirits of God referenced in revelation and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. His judgment will be intuitive. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. And look how things now change. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion and the flatling together. And a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the sucking child shall play in the hole of the asp. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the cockatrice den. And and they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isn't that wonderful? My friend, are you ready for that day? Are you ready if the Lord should come? That's what this prayer is praying. You 
know there are millions of people who pray this prayer and feel good, feel a little warmth inside when they pray it, feel they're a little more religious, feel they're a little more accepted unto God by praying this prayer, who are as far from God as the devil himself. Listen, if you understood this prayer, you would pray it very carefully and very thoughtfully indeed. He says, thy kingdom come. The king is coming. Thy will be done. That's why he's coming. And then he moves on and he says, give us this day our daily bread. That's his goodness. Now here's the thing. Despite man's rebellion, Despite the offense that God has caused on a daily basis, the God of grace meets our needs every single day. Whether you're a sinner or you're a saint, whether you're living for him or rebelling against him, God meets our needs every single day. Every day God is good to us. In him we live and move and have our being. I love what the Lord said to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8, if you want to look there for a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And the Lord knew that there would be a time when this people who were at this point rough and ready and preparing to cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan and who inherit their possessions and their promises. God knew there would be a time come when they became so affluent and they became so strong that they would begin to exhibit elements of pride in their national identity and in their personal lives. And he cautioned them ahead of time concerning such a spirit. And he says this in chapter 8 of Deuteronomy and verse 11, Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied and all that thou hast is multiplied then thine heart be lifted up and thou forget the Lord thy God which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And thou say in thine heart, My power and the might of mine hand have gotten me this wealth, but thou shalt remember the Lord thy God. Look what it says. For it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. You see, there's the temptation, isn't it? You get a little bit of wealth. You get a little bit of affluence. You get on a little bit in this life. And you start to believe that it was all you were doing. You start to believe that you're a self-made man, a self-made woman, and you don't recognize the goodness and the grace of God in your life. You wouldn't have, friends, anything at all if it were not for the goodness and grace of God in your life. You wouldn't even be anything at all if it was not for the goodness and the grace of God in your life. It is God who has created us, who sustains us, who feeds us, who waters us, who heals our diseases, who gives us life day in and day out. So that Paul says this, despisest thou the goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. 
The psalmist said, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. Why? He says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that puts his trust in him. Later on in Psalm 107 and verse 1, the psalmist has this to say, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endureth forever. I wonder tonight, dear friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, can you not be grateful for the goodness of God in your life? Can you not just for once in your life be thankful for his daily provision? Can you not see that without him you would have nothing at all? That without him you would be nothing at all? Give us this day our daily bread. That's his goodness. And then Jesus continued, and forgive us our debts. That's what God does. At least if we ask him to, that's what he will do. Did you know that if you're here and you're not a Christian, or you're listening online and you're not a Christian, did you know that you are in debt to God? That you owe God You're in debt in the first place for his daily provision. That's right. You owe God. You owe him for every crumb that ever crosses your mouth, for every breath you've ever taken, for every drop of water you've ever drank, for every disease you've ever been healed from. You owe him. But more than that, you owe him for the cross. You see, the greatest sin that a man can commit is not ingratitude for daily blessings, although that is sinful enough. That's a great sin. But the greatest sin any man can commit is to, is to continue in unbelief concerning God's Son. Every sin that man commits, God will forgive. Every sin. But the rejection of his Son, he will never forgive. You've crossed the line with God. If you won't put your heart's trust in Christ, listen to me. You've crossed the line with God. I don't care what else you've done. Whatever you've done, you could have murdered somebody. God will forgive it. You could have robbed somebody. God will forgive it. You could have molested somebody. God will even forgive that. But he won't forgive the rejection of a son. He won't forgive you for bypassing Calvary. You see, you need forgiveness. And the greatest sin that you can commit is to reject Christ. You see, there's no forgiveness outside of the cross. That's why the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Friends, the cross is about forgiveness. Jesus died on the cross not to be a victim, not to be an example of suffering. He died on the cross to be our Savior. What did he pray on that cross? He prayed, Father, what? Forgive them. The cross was about forgiveness. Tonight, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you need forgiveness. And if you are a Christian, well, then you need to forgive. The book of Colossians makes that very clear. Speaking of Christ's sacrifice, it says, Christ hath delivered us from the power of darkness, hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. I wonder tonight, are your sins forgiven? Is God your Father? Is heaven your home? Are you ready for the coming of the Lord? Are your sins forgiven? And then the Lord continues and he says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's his power. You see, such is salvation's impact on us that it empowers us to do something that we would have considered previously 
perhaps to be impossible, even unthinkable, to forgive those who have wronged us. Real forgiveness doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come readily, especially when we have been deeply wounded and it's hard to let go of the wrong. But the cross changes that. The cross turns that around. You see, the cross changes us, at least it ought to, and it gives us a reason to forgive. Uh, Paul in Ephesians 4 and 32 says, And be ye kind one to another, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. If you were with us on Wednesday evening, you would have heard a missionary presentation by Daniel Moore from New Tribes Mission speaking about his ministry in Papua New Guinea. And he, at the end of the presentation, he showed a picture, a great big collective of, uh, of native people, of Papua New Guinean people, all gathered together in a Christian conference. And he made the point that these people, uh, not so many years ago, would have been at war with each other. They would never have been seen in the same photograph. They would never have been in the same vicinity peaceably. But now they gather with a Bible in their hands and they praise the same Lord that you and I praise. That's the power of the gospel. How are you in forgiveness? What does that say about your soul tonight? Is there somebody there you're holding a grudge against and you won't let them go? Well, friend, what makes you think then you've been let go? What does that say about your relationship with God? And then the Lord says, lead us not into temptation. That's his direction. Psalm 23 puts that positively when it says this, He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You see, knowing Jesus, having God as my Father, changes my life. It changes my direction. Before I was saved, I went one way. But after I was saved, I went an altogether different way. Isn't that your testimony tonight if you're a Christian? That your life was taking one direction without Christ and and when Jesus came in you did a 180 degree turn and you went a completely different direction. You know, before I became a Christian, I sought out temptation. I was attracted to temptation. I went looking for temptation, looking for trouble. But my, when I got saved, that was a different story. Now I try to avoid temptation where I can and to seek to resist it when I have to. That's the difference that knowing Jesus makes. I wonder tonight, do you run from temptation or do you run to temptation? Do you know him? Is God your father? Are you heading for heaven? Are you ready if the Lord should come? Are you forgiven? Where will you spend eternity. And then the Lord says this, but deliver us from evil. That's his victory. That's his victory. Literally it means deliver us from the evil one. From Satan himself. I wonder do you believe in the devil tonight? You know, you have to be spiritually blind, I think, not to believe there's a devil tonight. I don't see how you can look at the world around you and not believe there's a devil tonight. You know, the Bible calls him the God of this world. Now, he's not the Lord of all. 
the earth as, as the God of the Bible is, but he's the God of this world in the sense that he is the one who is over this wicked world system that dominates our lives, a system that is latent with grief, greed and perversity and pride and sin of every sort, a system that calls evil good and good evil, that puts darkness for light and light for darkness, that puts bitter for sweet and sweet for bitterness. You don't think Satan's pulling the strings? You don't think he might be behind the confusion of our little ones when it comes to the matter of gender? Don't you think he's attacking womanhood by means of this matter and these crazy drag queens and all of this nonsense? I don't know about you, but I'm sick to death hearing about those people. Drag queens, what in the world is that? I'll tell you what it is. It's a demonic caricature of God's good creation. That's what it is. It's a demonic caricature of God's good creation. You say, Pastor, you can't say that. I've just said it. You say, you go to prison. Fine. You can join me there. That's what it is. I'm weary of people telling everyone else they want to be addressed by selective pronouns. Universities are, are telling our young people that they should try asking someone before they, before they get to know them, well, what are your personal pronouns? What would you like me to call you? And they've got to get used to referring to an individual as he or she or Z or Zim or they or them or whatever weird designation they want to give themselves. Let me tell you something. The only time in Scripture that an individual uses personal pronouns in that way when they're an individual and they give you a pronoun that is a plural pronoun the only time that happens in scripture is when those people are demon possessed do you realize that don't you think God is bothered by any of this you know look at how far we've come you realize that 20 years ago, 20 years ago, in my lifetime, in the lifetime of many of you here, it was illegal to promote homosexuality in schools. It was illegal. 50 years ago, it was illegal to practice homosexuality. Now we find that not only are people practicing it, not only is it being promoted in schools, But now we're called upon to celebrate it. To take pride in it. To be glad for it. Here we are, 50 years, one generation, and you see how far we've fallen. We've gone from a place where people would have said, no, that's absolutely evil and completely wrong, and it will be a matter of decay for society. It's against the word of God. To a place where people are waving flags and celebrating I was watching match of the day just a few moments last night and I noticed one of the football teams came right out from their tunnel, right under their tunnel. Over the tunnel was a flag representing all the genders and all the sexual preferences of this world. What would our fathers and forefathers have thought of such a thing? Your grandfather or great-grandfather, if we could bring him back to this day and say, look at what's going on in our society, what do you think he would say? I'll tell you what he would say. He'd say you've gone mad. 
He said, there's, there's a problem with you people. He'd say, this is nothing but pure evil. This is nothing but pure wickedness. This is nothing but a mental illness. He would, he would protest it. He would oppose it. He would stand against it. Now, if that's how far man has fallen in 50 years, think how far man has fallen since the beginning of time, since our first parents fell. If you're looking now at where we are after 50 years, imagine going all the way back to the beginning, to Adam and to Eve, and to think about where man started from and where he he's gotten to today. Do you still think the Lord isn't coming? Oh, he's coming, all right. Listen, if your father is not our father, then your father is also their father. The father of the perverts and the father of the of those who are destroying our culture and destroying our children and destroying our society. He's dragging you. The old devil is dragging you and the whole world with him all the way to hell. Oh Lord, deliver us from the evil one. And then he ends up and he says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory Forever. That's his by right. That's his by right. You see, he's worthy of our surrender. He's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our dependence. He's worthy of our worship. What he says will be. Whether people like it or not, it will be. All these things, the kingdom, the power and the glory will ultimately rest in his throne. It will all be in his hands. That's what you're praying when you pray this prayer. Do you realize now we we have a king ascending to the throne who wants to dethrone Jesus? Say, what do you mean, pastor? Isn't he the defender of the faith? Well, that was the traditional title. But we have a king now who's wrestling with the Church of England and wants to have Sikhs and Muslims and Jews and Hindus offering prayers in Westminster Abbey on the day of his coronation. You see, what the king is saying here is this. And understand this, the king is a devotee of Carl Jung who was opposed to Christianity and opposed to religion in general. But what the king is trying to do is say this. Jesus is no longer the way for the British nation. Jesus is just a way for the British nation. He's trying to dethrone the Lord Jesus. And let me tell you, he does it at his peril. He does it at his peril. For God will not bless such a reign. No, listen. What that king needs to recognize is what every Jewish king recognized, or most kings recognized in Judah was that their power was granted to them by the king of kings. And to acknowledge who really sits on the throne. And then the Lord Jesus ends it, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. And that's where he dwells. He dwells in forever. He dwells in the eternal. God is not constricted by time. God is not contained within space or, or matter. God is beyond that. Do you realize that? God exists outside of space and time and matter. You can't put God in a box. You can't say to God, this is how long you've got. 
You can't reach out and, and, and hold God as though he's made of material things. God is a spirit. And he dwells in the eternal. And that's where you are headed today. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes, the great Israelite king Solomon coming to the end of his days, and sadly it was a very shameful end of his days, discusses the various activities that he engaged in in order to find meaning in life. And he says this at the end of the book, Then shall the dust, speaking of humanity, return to the earth as it was, and listen, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. He tells you that your destiny is eternity. If that would happen today, if your body should return to dust, where's your spirit going to go? Where will you spend eternity? And the very last word of this prayer is the word that is familiar at the end of so many prayers, is the word, Amen. Forever and ever, Amen. You know, that's the last word. It's always the last word. It's also one of the names of the Lord Jesus. He is the Amen, according to Revelation 3.14. He's the end of, of, of God's word on salvation. He's the last word on salvation. And here's what it means. It means, so be it. Or other words, I agree. You know, we meet as a, as a church on a Wednesday night or in a pre-church prayer meeting. And someone is praying and we all at the end say, Amen. We're not just putting a full stop on the end of a sentence. We're saying, I agree. Let that be. Let that happen. So be it. And when you pray the Lord's Prayer, and you're praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and then you say, amen, you're saying, so be it. You're saying, even so come, Lord Jesus. Even so come and set right the wrongs of this world. Even so come and judge sinful men. Even so come and establish your kingdom. Even so come and damn those who will reject you. Do you realize tonight, if you're here and you're not a Christian, and you say that prayer and you say amen at the end of it, you're really Signing your own eternal death warrant. If you are ever to be saved, you need to get to the amen and actually agree with God. To enter into God's glory, you must agree with God's word. You must accept his truth. None of this your truth and my truth nonsense. No, his truth. You must agree about who he is and who you are. You must agree that he is eternal, all-powerful, glorious, that we are sinful and fallen. You must believe that through the cross your sin debt was paid and your sin punished and you can be forgiven. And if you will do that tonight, our Father, listen to me, can be your Father but you must come to him through Christ in faith, believing. Where will you spend eternity? Is our God your God? Our Father your Father? Our heaven your heaven?
So our forgiveness, your forgiveness, is our Savior, your Savior. Why not tonight come to Jesus and say amen to the gift of salvation that he offers you this evening? We're going to 